Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today it's just me, no guest. I hope everyone out there is doing well. If you listened to episode 66, I covered neuromuscular blockers. And in that episode, I said I would come back another day and go into detail about reversals, and that is what we're going to do today. So I am going to talk about reversal of neuromuscular blockade. A lot of this is going to come from a fantastic chapter in Miller's Anesthesia, 8th uh, edition, uh, which will be cited in the show notes, as well as a variety of excellent articles, uh, which I'll list as well in the show notes for you to check out. So let's jump right in. Let's start with some basic background. So first of all, it's important to realize that while some practitioners out there may think that this isn't a problem, everyone reverses appropriately, uh, that's not true. In fact, as recently as a survey done in 2010, more than half of practitioners in the United States and Europe did not use reversal. They just waited until they thought there was enough recovery. And so that's, that leads to some major problems, which we'll talk about in a second. When people do test to see if they think there's adequate reversal, the most common tests that people do are just tests of clinical strength, things like, are they pulling good tidal volumes? Maybe can they lift their head if they're following directions? But it turns out that those tests do not have good sensitivity when it comes to determining if someone has adequate reversal. So, for example, most patients can maintain a five-second head lift even if their train-of-four ratio is less than 0.5. Now, let's back up a second and talk about what is a train-of-four ratio. So, when you're doing a train-of-four, which is a common way to detect recovery from neuromuscular blockade, you're giving four maximal stimuli every 0.5 seconds. So every half second, you're giving a stimulus that is supramaximal. And what that means is that it's enough to overcome any threshold and cause a depolarization of the nerve. So then the question is, will that nerve activate the muscle? So what you're testing is the neuromuscular junction. You definitely cause a depolarization of the nerve. And what you want to know is, is the neuromuscular junction working or not? And so you give those four stimuli, one every half a second, and what you're testing is the difference between, well, first what you're testing is are there any twitches at all? So if the muscle reacts, it'll twitch. And if there are twitches, if there are four, then the question is what is the ratio of strength between the first and the last? And with non-depolarizing blockers, as you'll remember from episode 66, you get fade, which means that if you don't have full strength, the first twitch will be stronger than the fourth twitch. So if the first twitch is double the fourth twitch, that's a train of four ratio of 0.5. If the first twitch is the same, that would be a train of four ratio of one, if the first and the fourth are the same, and that would be full recovery. The way that adequate recovery is defined is 0.9. In other words, the fourth twitch should be 90% or more of the first twitch. And why 0.9? Well, it wasn't always thought to need to be 0.9. But it turns out that with train of four ratios less than 0.9, people will have impaired pharyngeal function. They'll have increased risk of airway obstruction. They're at increased risk of aspirating gastric contents. They're at risk of having an impaired hypoxic ventilatory control and having actual symptoms and feeling of muscle weakness, which is obviously uncomfortable for patients. And so it's generally accepted now that the adequate recovery is 0.9. Unfortunately, the human hand is incapable of determining whether a recovery has reached 0.9. We can determine if there's nothing there, and we can probably determine somewhere around a recovery of 0.5, 0.6, 
whether it's more or less than that. But we cannot determine whether someone's at 0.6, 0.7, or 0.9. And that's a big deal because if we can't tell that someone is 0.7 and we think that's 0.9 or we think it's full, we think it's 100% recovery, then we may say, oh, let's extubate. But those patients who are only at 0.6 or 0.7 are going to have increased risk of respiratory complications postoperatively. And so the truly accurate way to measure is with acceleromyography, which is often abbreviated AMG. And that's an actual machine that goes on the hand and tests the abductor pollicis muscle and gives stimuli to the nerve and then tests whether the twitches are there and what the ratio is. And that machine, much better than any human being, can actually measure it very, very accurately. So if that machine tells you you are at a train of four ratio of 0.9 or even a one, then you can be confident in your patient's reversal. But because we don't ubiquitously have those machines, because patients are often just being having their twitches felt by a human hand, we really should be giving reversal because there's no way to know by your own feel if that patient actually has gotten to a full reversal or not. And so the only way to know that you're real, to feel really good about your reversing them is if you actually give reversal, not just assume that enough time has passed and now they feel like they've got four strong twitches and so you're not going to do it. And certainly looking and saying, oh, great, they can raise their head for five seconds, they're taking good tidal volumes, that doesn't work. We talked in the episode 66 about how just the fact that you're taking large tidal volumes really has nothing to do with whether you're going to be able to protect your airway after extubation, right? Your airway is tented open by that endotracheal tube. So being able to take good tidal volumes if, you have, if you're not on any pressure support may be an indicator that your diaphragm has recovered, but your diaphragm is much more robust than your muscles that protect your airway, and so you may well not be able to protect your airway once you're extubated, and therefore you may be at higher risk of aspiration and other pulmonary complications. All right, so when you're testing to see if someone has adequate recovery... There are a variety of ways that we typically do it. Again, the best way is with uh, the AMG monitor, but if you don't have that, then generally what you're doing is giving a train of four, as we said, four stimuli every half second, and, or one, stimuli, one stimulus every half second for a total of four stimuli, and feeling the twitches. There are other ways to do it. So you can give a tetanus. That's a series of extremely rapid, so we're talking about 50 or 100 hertz, so 50 or 100 stimuli per second. Uh, over five seconds. So you're giving us what, it, what is essentially like a constant stimulus, but is actually a series of extremely rapid stimuli over five seconds. And you're trying to determine if there's fade between the beginning and end of that. You may also hear about a double burst stimulation, and that's two short bursts of 50 hertz that are separated by 750 milliseconds. And it turns out that if you're doing a train of four, or if you're doing a 50 hertz tetanus, the ability of a clinician to detect fade really stops at about point a train of four ratio of about 0.4 or a beginning to end ratio of about 0.4. So it's really bad. A double burst is a little better. Clinicians can get up to around uh, tra- determining a fade ratio of about 0.6 to 0.7. Uh, and as same with about 100 hertz stimulus uh, tetanus as opposed to the 50 hertz, but none of them are better than being able to detect 0.7. And remember, if you can't tell if your patient is at 0.7 or higher, then you're going to have patients who are not adequately reversed. Let's talk for a minute about post-tetanic stimulation because you might have a patient who has no twitches, and now you have no idea. Are they about to get one twitch back or are they very far from getting even that one twitch back? You can't tell with a traditional monitor. 
Even the AMG can't tell because if there's no twitches, there's no twitches. But what you can do is test post-Titanic twitches. And this is often misunderstood of exactly how to do it. So the way you do this is, you're, let's say you're on your arm and you've got your setup. So you're testing, you're simulating the ulnar nerve and you're testing the abductor pollicis. So the thumb twitching in. You first give a 50 hertz stimulus for five seconds. So that's your tetanus. You're giving 50 hertz for five seconds. Then you wait three seconds. And then you start giving one stimulus every one second and you count how many twitches you get. So if you're somewhere in the neighborhood of about 8 to 12, that means you're pretty close to getting one twitch back. If you only have one or two post-Titanic twitches, then you've got a while to go, maybe 15, 20 minutes before you get one twitch back. And if you have no post-Titanic twitches, now you are truly in a profound relaxation, and it's going to be a while before you get a twitch back. This is a very important test to be able to do to figure out where you are in any kind of deep blockade where there are no regular twitches. And it's also important to determine the dosing of Sugamidex if you're going to use Sugamidex for reversal, and we'll talk about that a little later. From a mechanistic standpoint, the reason this works is that the tetanus will start to mobilize some acetylcholine at the pre-junctional membrane in the nerve so that more acetylcholine is mobilized down to the end plate or to the end of the nerve, which can then be released to the motor end plate. So you're mobilizing more acetylcholine with the tetanus. That's why you get more twitches, even if you wouldn't have any with regular stimulation. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that when you do a post-titanic stimulus, when you do that test, you've now mobilized the acetylcholine, and so you may be interfering with your ability to do a regular train of four at that site. And there's some mixed data on exactly how long it can mess it up for, but probably it's somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10 minutes. You can either switch to another site or you can wait and then do it a little later on that same site. All right, so now let's turn to how we actually go about reversing neuromuscular blockade. There are two ways to do this, not counting just waiting, But certainly you can. If you wait long enough and you have an AMG monitor, you can actually have someone get full recovery. That's a train of four ratio of 0.9 or better with no chemical means of reversal. However, if you don't have the AMG or you don't want to wait until someone has a full reversal on their own, then you need to give a drug to cause reversal of the neuromuscular blockade. And you can do that either by giving acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and these are things like neostigmine, edrophonium, or peridostigmine, or you can give sugamidex. So we'll get to sugamidex later. Let's start with the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So what these do is they inhibit acetylcholinesterase, which is the enzyme which breaks down acetylcholine. So because you are not breaking down acetylcholine, more acetylcholine will get to the neuromuscular junction and it will compete with your non-depolarizing blockers. Now, it won't compete with SUCKS because SUCKS is a depolarizing blocker, but it will compete with the non-depolarizing blockers like cis-atricurium, atricurium, rocuronium, vecuronium, etc. So when you flood the end plate with more acetylcholine, you will try to outcompete those non-depolarizing drugs. Because it's a competition, it depends on how much is there, and there is a ceiling effect for how much acetylcholine you can actually get, no matter how much reversal agent you give. So you, that's why we have maximums on the amount of neostigmine or edrophonium or whatever drug you're using, 
because you can only get so much acetylcholine to the end plate. Once you've reached that maximum, that's the maximum effect you're going to get. So it turns out that if there's enough rocuronium, vecuronium, cisatricurium at the end plate, then you aren't going to get any effect from your acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. That's why you can't just give this whenever you want. You have to wait until you have some decent recovery first. So you cannot antagonize deep blockade with acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. It won't work. In fact, studies have shown that there is no increase in the speed of recovery if you give acetylcholinesterase inhibitors early when you still have a deep block. So you have to wait until you have some recovery. Now, when I was a resident, I was taught one twitch. As soon as you get one twitch, you can give it. And you can, and you will speed up recovery, but not by much. And the recovery, when you give even a max dose of, let's say, neostigmine, when someone has just barely one twitch, is still a long recovery. It can be 30 minutes or more for someone to get full recovery. If you wait until someone has four twitches, it's going to be a lot faster, but still not that fast. Even with four twitches, it can take 10 to 15 minutes to get full reversal. And this is significant if you wait until the surgeon is completely done, then you reverse, and then two or three minutes later, you extubate. That patient won't yet be fully reversed, even if they had four twitches before you gave the neostigmine. So you have to have at least one twitch. It's definitely better to have two, three, even four, but you also have to remember that even if you have four, you have to wait adequate time, at least 10 to 15 minutes before you extubate if you want someone to have truly full recovery. On the other hand, if you give it when someone doesn't have any twitches, you will not reverse them. You won't speed up the reversal at all, and you may then assume they're reversed when they're not. The most commonly used acetylcholinesterase inhibitor is neostigmine, but you can also use edrophonium or peridostigmine, and they do have significantly different onsets of peak effect. So the peak effect of the antagonism with neostigmine is about 7 to 10 minutes, with peridostigmine, it's just a little longer, about 12 to 15 minutes. With edrophonium, it's much faster, one to two minutes. So I mentioned before that there is that ceiling effect and therefore a max dose of these drugs. So 70 mics per kilo with a max of about five milligrams uh, in adults is the uh, max dose of neostigmine. It's about 1.5 milligrams per kilogram with edrophonium and 350 mics per kilogram of peridostigmine. Now let's talk about neostigmine because that's the most common and certainly what I am the most familiar with. And the way that I was taught to give neostigmine is to give 5 milligrams of neostigmine, which is usually 5 mLs of the drug, and then to give an equivalent volume of glycopyrrolate with it. And we'll talk about why we do that in a second. But if you give 5 mLs of neostigmine and then 5 mLs of glycopyrrolate, that's 1 milligram of glycopyrrolate and 5 milligrams of neostigmine, that tends to be a little bit of an overdose of the glycopyrrolate in the sense that people will get some tachycardia from that. Now, that's okay, and it tends not to be extreme tachycardia, but if you want a more hemodynamically stable dose and you're giving the full dose 5 milligrams of neostigmine, usually a little less glycopyrrolates, about 0.8 milligrams or 4 mLs of glycopyrrolate is going to give you a little bit more of a hemodynamically stable reversal. You don't always have to give full reversal. There was concern for a while that if you gave neostigmine and glycopyrrolate to a patient who did not have any block, you could cause 
paradoxical weakness, but that's very controversial, and there's been some data recently to suggest that that may not actually be clinically relevant at all, and that it is safe to go ahead and give reversal even if you're not sure about the recovery. So in general, you don't have to give a full dose. If someone has four twitches with very strong twitches and you don't detect any fade, which again doesn't mean they have full recovery, you could give half a dose. You could give through two and a half or three milligrams of neostigmine. But you can also argue that with more recent data, there may not be a reason to do that. However, it is, I think, a common practice to give if someone seems like they are very well recovered to give half a dose instead of a full dose, check with your local protocols to figure out if there's a guideline that you should be following. So why do we give the glycopyrrolate along with the neostigmine? So neostigmine, again, causes the extra concentration of acetylcholine to get to the nerve muscle junction, but it also acts everywhere in the body. So you're getting increased action of acetylcholine. Now we want that action at the muscle because we're trying to reverse the blockade, but what we don't want is that action at other parts of the body. So it causes increased GI motility, for example, which can cause things like diarrhea, maybe not the end of the world, but what we do want to avoid are the cardiovascular effects. So neostigmine and other acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, when given alone, can cause significant bradycardia, even asystole, which can be obviously a big problem and something we want to avoid. So we don't give neostigmine alone. We need something that will block its effect everywhere else except at the neuromuscular junction. And as it turns out, we have the perfect drug because the neuromuscular junction has nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, and the heart has muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. And so if we can block the muscarinic effects without blocking the nicotinic effects, we're in business. And sure enough, we have anti-muscarinic agents. So glycopyrrolate is an anti-muscarinic. That's why we give it with the neostigmine. Now, you may hear people say, always give the glycopyrrolate first, make sure it works, then give the neostigmine. In general, I tend to mix the two together and just give it as a bolus. Whatever your local practice is, check again to make sure there may be specific protocols for you. As long as you're giving them both, you should be in good shape. Now, if you are using neostigmine, glycopyrrolate is the anti-muscarinic of choice because its onset is about the same as neostigmine. If you're using edrophonium, remember I said that had a much faster onset. And so atropine, which has a faster onset than glycopyrrolate, is a good option to use with edrophonium. Because pyridostigmine is slower than either edrophonium or neostigmine, if you give atropine or glycopyrrolate, you're going to get some tachycardia. Still better to give glycopyrrolate because it's a little slower than atropine in onset, but you might want to wait and give your glycopyrrolate a little bit after your pyridostigmine. That you should definitely follow up with your pharmacists and see what local guidelines you have. I don't use protostigmine. I never have. And so I don't want to uh, pretend to be an authority on exactly how to administer that. In general, most of us are using neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. Uh, and if you're using edrophonium, atropine is the correct uh, antimuscarinic to use with that. The other advantage of giving antimuscarinics with the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors is you avoid bronchospasm. So neostigmine alone causes bronchospasm, but neostigmine and glycopyrrolate do not. So in children, there's really no difference. The neuromuscular blockers and the reversals will act similarly. So you use a weight-based dosing, obviously, but you do not need to change the dose for their age. 
in older adults, neuromuscular blocking drugs will last longer, but so will the reversals. So you don't need to alter the dose uh, of your reversal. You just reverse as you would uh, based on the recovery. An interesting fact that may come up on an exam is that volatile anesthetics interfere with the antagonism of neuromuscular blockade. So people who have a neuromuscular block with a non-depolarizing blocker like rocuronium or vecuronium or cisatricurium will recover faster after getting neostigmine if they're receiving TIVA compared to if they're receiving an inhaled anesthetic. And again, I just want to emphasize that while some people may learn that if it's been, if you only gave one dose of VEC or ROC with induction and now it's been four or five hours of a case, it's been long enough you don't need to give reversal, there are still probably something about 10% of people who will still not have a train of four ratio of 0.9 even four hours after one dose, an intubating dose of VEC or ROC. So it can still have effects that far out, and that's why you really want to either have an AMG monitor, which can tell you if they have truly 0.9 train of four ratio or more, or if you don't have that monitor, you should give reversal so you can be sure. All right, let's talk about Sugamidex. In the United States, this is a new drug. We didn't have this until pretty recently. So how does Sugamidex work? How is it different? It has nothing to do with inhibiting acetylcholinesterase. Sugamidex encapsulates rocuronium, and to a slightly lesser extent, about 2.5 times less strongly, it encapsulates vecuronium. But it still works well on vec because it encapsulates rock so strongly that 2.5 times less is still a lot. And so it works against rock and vec. Really important, it does not work with pancuronium or cisatricurium or anything else. So it only works for rocuronium and vecuronium. And I do want to take a moment to point out here that every once in a while, you'll hear someone say that you don't need to reverse cisatricurium because it falls apart on its own through Hoffman elimination. But let me be very clear that it is true that cisatricurium will degrade on its own through Hoffman elimination, but that does not mean you don't have to reverse it. It's still a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker and still has all the same risks of persistent blockade without reversal. So just like rocuronium and vecuronium, cisatricurium still should be reversed unless you have an AMG monitor showing 0.9 or better recovery, and then you can feel okay about not reversing it. So don't get fooled by the Hoffman elimination to think it doesn't need reversal. It doesn't rely on kidney function or biliary function to be eliminated, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be reversed. All right, so Sugamidex, what happens is it encapsulates the rocuronium or vecuronium and then creates a concentration gradient leading out of the neuromuscular junction back into the plasma because free rocuronium has now disappeared from the plasma. And so now the rocuronium will diffuse into the plasma down its concentration gradient and will continue to get encapsulated and then will continue to diffuse. And so it quickly all diffuses out of the neuromuscular junction. Interestingly, the plasma level of rocuronium increases because when they measure the plasma level of rocuronium, that includes the encapsulated rocuronium. So between what's diffusing into the plasma and what's getting encapsulated, the plasma rocuronium, when you give Sugamidex increases. So this could easily come up on a test, and it would seem like a wrong answer. You would say, no, when you give Sugamidex, the plasma level of rocuronium doesn't go up, but it does. It's the level at the neuromuscular junction that goes down. As you probably know from the last podcast, rocuronium is mostly cleared through the biliary system, but not when bound to Sugamidex. So the rocuronium-Sugamidex complex is 
cleared mostly through the renal system. And dialysis can remove the Sugamidex and Sugamidex rocuronium complex. So it is possible to do that. It probably has to be a high-flux dialysis. It's a little unclear, and there's going to be more studies on that. You may know that Sugamidex is not recommended in end-stage renal disease because of the not great evidence about the use, but when it has been looked at so far, it does appear to be safe in patients with end-stage renal disease and can be dialyzed off with that high-flux system, and so it's probably okay. However, it isn't recommended, and I certainly am not telling you to go against the recommendations, so go by whatever recommendations your hospital has. Let's talk about Sugamidex dosing. So the dosing depends on the degree of recovery, and what you want to do is first test a train of four. If you have anywhere from two train of four twitches up or more, three, four, then all you need to give is two milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex. Now, you do want to dose this based on actual body weight, okay? Not based on lean or predicted. You want to base this on actual body weight. So two milligrams per kilogram if you have two twitches, three twitches, or four twitches. If you have one twitch, you're going to give four milligrams per kilogram. What if you have no twitches? So this is where the post-tetanic stimulation comes in. If you have no twitches, you now have to do a post-tetanic stimulation and measure your post-tetanic twitch count. If you have at least two post-tetanic twitches, you're good to stick with that four milligram per kilogram dose. If you have less than two, meaning you have only have one post-tetanic twitch or you have no post-tetanic twitches, now you have an option. You can either wait until you get two post-tetanic twitches, which probably shouldn't be too long, or if you have to reverse for some reason, it's an emergency, let's say you just gave your dose of your intubating dose and now you can't intubate, then you're going to give 16 milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex, and that can reverse even that profound blockade immediately after even an RSI dose of rocuronium or vecuronium. In fact, studies have shown that a 16 milligram per kilogram dose of Sugamidex given right after an RSI dose of rocuronium can reverse the block in an average of two minutes. Now, that's compared with seven minutes for spontaneous recovery from succinylcholine. So you actually can get much faster reversal in an emergency, cannot intubate, cannot ventilate situation after an RSI dose if you use ROC and follow it with a 16 milligram per kilogram dose of Sugamidex. Remember, we said with the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors like neostigmine, you can't even do it until you get at least one twitch. Sugamidex can reverse deep blockade. Neostigmine can only reverse shallow blockade. And even when you have shallow blockade, the recovery from neostigmine is going to still be up to 10 times longer than the recovery for Sugamidex. So remember, even from two twitches, Neostigmine can take 20, 30 minutes for full recovery, where Sugamidex will just take a couple of minutes. And to give you another comparison, let's say you have a post-tetanic count of two, so you're going to give four milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex, you're going to get recovery in about five minutes or less, that's to a train to four ratio of 0.9, with Sugamidex, and if you were to use Neostigmine, remember it won't actually speed up recovery, you would have up to an hour or more before you got that same recovery if you just gave the neostigmine, so you can't do acetylcholinesterase inhibitors in that setting. As far as we know, Sugamidex is safe in pregnancy, it's safe in breastfeeding women, there's minimal placental transfer, and no known adverse effects for the baby. There are some side effects, so the severe ones that 
have been reported are anaphylaxis and severe bradycardia. They're very rare, probably more common with the higher doses. And then the other one that we, uh, of course, hear about and have to tell patients about is that it can interfere with hormonal contraceptive drugs for up to seven days because it can bind the hormone. And so if you're going to give it to a woman who could potentially get pregnant, you want to let them know that their hormonal contraceptives may not be effective for up to a week after getting the Sugamidex. The other thing that comes up is reintubation after Sugamidex. So let's say that you give the Sugamidex, you extubate someone, and now you immediately have to reintubate them. So the recommendation is to use a non-steroidal neuromuscular blocking drug like cisatricurium, or of course you can use succinylcholine. And the recommendation is to avoid using ROC or VEC for up to 24 hours after the dose of Sugamidex. However, there are studies, just so you know, that show that high-dose rocuronium, so like an RSI dose, 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, given even just five minutes after a Sugamidex reversal dose, can still produce blockade in three minutes. So a little longer, three minutes for an RSI dose is long for ROC, takes a little longer, but can still work. But Still, the recommendation would be, and if you have access to cisatricurium or succinylcholine is safe in your patient, you might want to do that after having given Sugamidex if you have to reintubate. The last thing I'll say is that there are some interesting drugs on the horizon. Don't know a ton about them, but they're called fumarate neuromuscular blockers. And just stay tuned. There's going to be more to come on these probably. But the idea of these is that they can produce profound blockade and then can be easily and quickly reversed with cysteine. That's all, just giving cysteine. And so if these pan out, it might be something that would play uh, a role in replacing some of the things we use now and allowing for deep blockade that can be safely and easily reversed. All right. That's it for now. Check out the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave a comment. What did I forget? Let me know. What else should I have said about neuromuscular blocking drug reversals? Let us know what your practice is. We can all learn from what you have to say if you leave a comment so everyone can see. You can also, of course, get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. You can sign up for the mailing list on the website, and you can see all the other content as well. If you're a fan of the show... Take a minute, go to iTunes, leave a comment and a rating. It helps other people find the show. And of course, if you're willing to help support the making of the show, we would really appreciate it. Go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.